So, uh, welcome to a Sunday uh, Dhamma Chats with the Sangha. I'm glad to see all of you here. It's getting to be a regular kind of group. I like that a lot. I like it too, yeah. So that you know each other and you're beginning to uh, find friends. And when you smile and nod, you know that that smiling and nodding is rubbing off. And somebody else will start to smile and nod. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, Marcus is interviewing for a job at a lot. right outside of Chiang Mai uh, in northern Thailand. And we already know that there's a a kind of a a famous important Wat there that's famous and important not only for the very, very ancient architecture, but also for the fact that they're really into Pika Buddha Dasa. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that Wat, I forgot the name of it, sorry. Umong, okay. Uh, They do retreats and all kinds of things like that. Um, And that the likelihood of temple abbots knowing about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is uh, kind of profound in the sense that it, I believe, in fact, it seems logical to say that it's hard to become an abbot at a lot without also becoming noble in that 20 years. But it can be done. And this is the test. This is the easy test. Because if he drops the name Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa on an abbot in a wat, remote wat in Thailand, he can get the immediate reaction of, oh, I don't know, or oh, I don't want to talk about it, or I'll see you later. <laughs> or, hey, friend. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, one question though, because the Thai people um, sometimes they don't know the name Bhikkhu Buddha Das, so they know him as like Indapaso or something like that. I can't remember now. Oh, that's another point that we have to straighten out. I've actually been slapped with that one before. That it took them twenty minutes to figure out who we was talking about. <laughs> yeah. Because the Thai name is Tan Achan Puttat Bhikkhu. Tan Achan so uh, the Tan Achan, actually the, the Tan is very much like the word U in Burmese, and it has to do with generally uncle. And we would go around calling each other Tan all the time at the watch. But Tan Achan put together means that he's the great, big, friendly sort of uh, uh, uncle who happens to be named Putatat in the Pali uh, being squished by the Thai tongue. The, uh, the, uh, uh, the B becomes a P, uh, the D's become a T, and the tail end is left ah, out. Right, yeah. After it was cremated from an, a T to an S. Okay, so Buddha Dasa are putatata, but the ta is left off at the end, so it just winds up being putatat piku. Gosh, I've said it enough. I hope everybody remembers that if they're around the Taiwan. <laughs> it, ma- it makes sense to me. I, I didn't. I didn't really know that actually. So thank you. Okay. 
And often he will respond back with just merely the ton or the ton of chan. That's the familiarity that people feel with uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. That that form actually is very infrequently used because the most often way would be the Thutatat because it's most often used in Thailand. That that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa hasn't really caught on in the West. We'll do something about that now, won't we? <laughs> what about the title Luang Paul? Like, I think it's like, um, dad, it's basically dad, kind of like, you know, Luang Paul is like one f- used for many monks in Thailand. Yeah, Luang Pa is actually um, Uncle Daddy. <laughs> pa uh, uh, and many Wat uh, abbots are named uh, Lung Pa. Then in fact, Achad Po slapped his face one time when he asked me, well, who was the name of the abbot at uh, what uh, Washington, D.C. where you stayed? And my answer was Lung Pa. And he says, <laughs> <laughs> the last I heard, Lung Pa Sarawak is still alive. And that's probably 10-year-old information. But I mean, he was already so old, he was mummified when I did see him. And he sort of sat there behind the, uh, 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 in a small room, uh, behind, you know, the kind of dais where you keep plastic Jesuses or giant Buddha statues and things like that. And so he stayed in a little room behind there. Uh, And that was... I think like 2003, a whole bunch of us monks went up to Washington, D.C. Uh, to, to sort of hang out. And that's where we met. In fact, I, that's where I personally met um, uh, Achan oh, Tiwan, at, uh, who he's the acting abbot. Achan Po's. Uh, 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 Sarawak uh, is still the abbot, but he's so old that he doesn't do anything anymore. And that happens a lot. And then, in fact, that's exactly the right way for it to happen because as he gets older, other people take on the duties. And that right now at Watso and Mok, they have three monks that are sharing the duties, and one of them will probably be the one who is elected as the abbot after Achan Po dies, and that's not happening anytime soon. He's only 93. <laughs> and, and so um, it really is, in a way, the most noble kind of an old boys club that you can imagine. And they do get around. And it's at the top level of the nobles and the old monks, generally they know about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. But that doesn't mean that if they don't know, that they're not noble. That in fact, that's how I I found out about it, was running into it in the Lao community, when I kind of was invited to take a road trip that wound us up in the... uh, uh, the Wat Denver, the big Wat in Laos, and the uh, the abbot there 
was the number two monk in the United States. And then later I got to go visit um, uh, the number one who is uh, Ajahn Bunmi uh, at Washington, D.C. of all things. They've got a lot. Wow, Washington is right outside of town. But it is huge piece of property and so many monks or Lao monks stay in and out <clears throat> in that uh, that place. So anyway, back to the Denver story, the monk there was the brother of another monk and also the uncle of another monk. They, those two guys were brothers and that this guy, the young one, was the, the son of the third brother who was not a monk. Okay, so you see all three generations, except that this was the son. And he was my friend, and he was uh, born and raised in um, Amarillo, Texas, in the Lao community there. And he spoke English mostly, but he's, he knew a, a, a bit of Lao. But I became his student, teaching him the Dhamma in English not knowing that he now goes and rats to his uncle about the stuff that I'm telling them <laughs> or telling him. And they get blown away. And so I get invited to go to, uh, to Denver to find out that it's also the Lao are noble also. And, and there's kind of the right kind of questions to ask and things like this that where you get it. And that, um, I was kind of surprised because I was still under the delusion at that time that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was unique. Where in fact he was not unique at all. That he had a teacher and his teacher's teacher uh, is um, uh, famous enough. He was the one who reformed Thai Buddhism around the times of uh, the early 19th century. And then he uh, disrobed to become the regent while Chula Longhorn Sam became a mage and then took over the throne in 1920 or something like that. Uh, and this monk was then uh, the patriarch and he gave that to this other monk whose name Bhikkhu Buddhagosajarn who then in the 1930s became Bhikkhu Buddhadasa's teacher. And so Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has a, quite a royal lineage back with, I mean, his, his number one teacher is Samdet Sangaraj, the patriarch of Thailand from like 1920 to 1950 when he died. And there is uh, at, at Wat Tat in Bangkok, there is a huge number of uh, manuscript, handwritten documents between the two of them, back and forth, because Bhikkhu Buddhadasa stayed in southern Thailand, and uh, his uh, teacher actually visited him one time. And um, that was hard doings back then. In the 1930s, probably the only way he could get there easily would be by boat, because Chaya was a port, but there were no good roads, that there were certainly a whole lot of foot traffic, but I do not expect an elderly uh, patriarch to go all the way by foot to Watsu and Mok, because it's what, 
six, seven hundred kilometers, something like that. But he did go to visit. And within two hours, they decided that uh, it would be beneficial for Bikupudadas to become uh, the patriarch's uh, student. And I really like that story. The reason is because it makes Bikupudadasa ordinary. And that what he has is attainable. But it has to be passed down in the lineage. That's why I'm so glad to make friends with you guys. I've got something that I've got to share with you. It comes through lineage. That's how old we don't know. But we do know that it's been associated with the royal family of Thailand for years or more. In fact, um, Achan Wicha was born in 1860, and he was the younger brother to the Longhorn, and the king was King Madgut. And the whole story there <laughs> is in The King and I, the movie, which the Thai people love except they don't like Ewell Brenner as the king because the king, Mangut, was nothing like the authoritarian SOB that was in the movie because they needed a big transition at the end of the movie, I suppose. But it was very clear within Thai history that King Mangut also noble. And there's a lot of people in the West that kind of think that uh, becoming enlightened is rare. That no one's been enlightened for hundreds of years, you know, those kind of things. Or that we've lost the practice, we've lost the friendship, or we've lost the techniques. And that it's just history. And that there's even a whole group uh, um, of, of Buddhists that are in the intention of, oh, we've got to breathe together. I mean, we should have all the evidence that we can put it back together, that which has been lost. And they don't recognize that it hasn't been lost. It just hasn't been transmitted to Western Buddhism very well. But when we have a group of people who are beginning to understand the teachings of the Buddha, they can help each other and start to build a Sangha right here on the internet. That the Buddha was not against technology at all. So we can use this technology that's easy and freely available to share that noble friendship that is part and parcel of this old boys club that is so profound because it's so full of nobles and it takes one to know one. I got a but question, Mara. Yes, go right ahead. Sorry. I recently went to like one of the monasteries around London, uh, Sittaveka or something like that, like by Ajahn Chah uh, was established, I guess. I went there yeah. and I was like very surprised how closed off it felt it, 
it did feel I, I could see that there's noble teachings there, but it did not feel like very welcoming to strangers, at least during daytimes. There's like a whole. Let me ask. I, I felt like. Let me. Do you, do you uh, were you there long enough to know uh, at least a, a few of the monks enough to know whether they were Asian or whether they were Western? I've only seen Western monks there, and it did. I didn't get to talk to any of them because there was like a structure to the system. You can only talk to them after five o'clock, and it, it felt really weird because I got there in the morning, and the whole day, the whole day is like scheduled into like gaps, and you can only talk to them during the evening. How Christian of them! I, I mean, don't at Unmoak or any of the other watch that I've stayed where there was a schedule. But this is all part of that Western mentality. This is Western Buddhism. You, in fact, gave it away when you said Achan Cha. That's why I asked what was the mix. If these had been all Thai monks, then I would have been surprised. But since you said they were all Western, I said, yeah, I know all have been there, done that. <laughs> But I did find like that the practices is still like noble. There were like books and stuff like that they're studying, which is noble. I'm not sure if they're understanding well, the teachings. You will never know. Perhaps you should know this. Maybe you don't. But Achan Cha was most specifically a student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Even though he lived in the Northeast at Nudan Ratchasima and had uh, Wat Pabong and then eventually uh, uh, Wat Panana Chat. The, um, the times, in fact, the only time that I have spent time with Achan Cha was at Wat Suan Mok. And I spent quite a lot of time with Achan Sumedho also, uh, kind of because they each one individually went to see Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and while they weren't, they were with me. And so I've spent quite a lot of time with Achan Cha and uh, Achan Sumedho, and then later spent about six weeks in uh, Himal Hanstead at uh, uh, Amaravati. I was there recently. Yeah. I might be uh, going to Amaravati next Friday for a while to stay there. I'm not sure what <laughs> I, I really have, didn't even look into it so much, but it seemed very interesting. Yeah, it's um, I would say um, um, that's surprising that that's your experience at uh, uh, Chittabhaveka, and um, it might just be because you were there for a day visit. I stayed a week at Amaravati and Amaravati is a, a big place with a, a lot of monks and nuns. Um, and even there, I, I think that, there they should have a mix of Thai also. Yes, yes. Is, is well known. Yeah. And the uh, uh, the important point that I want to make is, is that because Achan Cha was also a student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, that meant that Achan Cha was within that noble group anyway. That that's the way you kind of understand it, because there was a wide number of very senior monks throughout Thailand who considered Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa 
their their teacher and their elder brother. He was that high of a status, and and the only reason why that was true was because he opened the bag and let the cat out to tie people in general. And in fact, that's what happened. He got in trouble for doing that in the 1930s, and the trouble that he got into was severe in the sense of someone uh, in a public talk that they heard of Vicar Gurudasa was so, um, let us say, upset about what he was saying that they made a big deal of it, got a lot of friends. I mean, they didn't have uh, TikTok or uh, Twitter back then, but they certainly knew how to talk. And they got a whole bunch of people against Bhikkhu Buddhadasa because he was, what they were accusing him was, of a Sangha de Sessa. Now, a Sangha de Sessa actually has a particular point to it that these lay people didn't understand. And that particular point of a sign of decessa is, is that it's when you are using malicious gossip, when you are talking, uh, Bhikkhu A is talking to Bhikkhu B about the problems with Bhikkhu C in order to get Bhikkhu B to side with you against Bhikkhu C. That's the sign of decessa, and it's based upon malicious gossip and so that's why both of those are in the the patty mark so it was basically an issue of them not understanding but in fact the teachings of the buddha is in layers this guy just didn't like it and made a big deal out of it and so they wound up because this was in bangkok because Bhikkhu buddha dasa was in poly studies they're standing and arguing with the teachers about what the definitions of words meant when this saying of the sessa happened and so, uh, because of the interest in all the kafafo, it wound up having most of the Sangha de Sessu was made up of very senior monks, mostly the abbots of all of the temples around the royal area of Bangkok, including uh, the ones I know, I'm not sure about who was on the council. But Wat Baban, Wat Mahatai, Wat Po, Wat uh, Arung, Wat uh, Atit, what uh said Ket, I mean they've got enough just royal watch around that area to come up with twenty. And the and the uh Sangha uh Samdat Sangharaj at the time, Achan Bhikkhu uh Buddha Gosacharan that I just mentioned before, he was on that council of twenty that tried Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa defended himself with the Pali, and that caused quite a kerfuffle at all of these places because this was the most scholarly uptight group of monks in Bangkok and, or, and literally in the world. And so they went through a major scurry through the Pali to back up everything or to deny everything that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa had to say, and he came out like a shiny penny because of this literature search. And they had to put away a lot of their, their uh, points. So, to, uh, as, as always with the compromise, the Sangha de Sessa ended with that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is teaching the right thing to the wrong people. Which means letting the cat out of the bag so that everybody could see what's going on. 
And he continued with that because he'd already been tried and proven guilty of it. And so he became guilty of that big time. With all of the public talks and everything that he gave, and Watson Mope was already mostly forested, so they built, I think, uh, at its height, there was like 400 monks staying there. And that would have been half of them would have been there all the time, full time, and the others were there for Ponta for about four months of the year. So, um, <clears throat> including the abbots that were already in the old boys club and they flocked to him. And so uh, very famous monks like um, Achan Panyananda, who was the uh, 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 Chao uh, Wat, which means the abbot, uh, Wat Chulapatan in Norterbury, north of uh, Bangkok. And it was known at the time to be the largest Wat in the world because of the number of monks there, three thousand. Can you imagine three thousand monks in one monastery and them going out for Pendabat? You know where they went to Pendabat? They went to the slums. Which was right across the road at the time. And so they fanned out and they'd go around because this is a very deeply heavily populated area. And one of the things that happened was that these monks were given so much food that they collected it by great big buckets full every day and took it to the school. And after a while, this became kind of the ritual so that the, when they, uh, you know, we don't know what your child's gonna eat today, but because you're contributing to the monks of 3000, all the schools in this neighborhood are gonna to get to feed their kids too. And that's the kind of thing that, that happens in Thailand around these kind of noble monks that can set stuff up like that. And, and so, um, Achan Panyananda was a very famous high quality monk that was a student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. So that's where Santikaro was sent for ordination. And so he spent quite a lot of time at Wachulapatan. And so he got really deeply into the Thai community in Bangkok. I mean, he was a shining example. He knew Thai better than anybody that, that we know of as well as the Western monk. And so he fit right into that Thai community in Bangkok very, very well. And that's where he spent most of his time after he became a full Achan after his 10 years. So that's an interesting side point. And now uh, in Bangkok, there's a huge facility that actually can be seen by Google Maps by going to uh, Chat uh, Chat Park is a big park in northern Bangkok, and just above that is a huge piece of property that is Watson Mo Bangkok. It's so big that they've got room for a lake. That's how big it is. <laughs> and and people like to walk around the lake. It's a, a, a very interesting facility, and and they're keeping the archives of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa because he was very prolific. Not necessarily in writing so much, but in speaking and in having it recorded. And so they were keeping a big library of cassettes. And I think that they've been going through a process of digitizing all of that stuff. The problem is not the speed of the digitizing. The problem is that you have to run those cassettes through a cassette machine and record. <laughs> 
and so it's a long, slow process. They've got so many. Um, and then it's all in time. Getting it from uh, the tape to the uh, to um, the digital is just one step. Now you've got to go through maybe with some AI and get it translated into. That's something that would be an interesting project is to get AI to trans uh, to uh, listen to Victor Budadas's voice and translate it first into Thai and then into English. That would be a part. I hadn't even thought about that. That would be a really good project. Do it all with computers. Got any volunteers here? <laughs> yeah, you can go stay in Bangkok at uh, uh, around the nobles at Wat Suan Mok North. Well, you're, if you if you get a computer to do it, then you're robbing someone of the chance to get enlightened while transcribing it old. <laughs> uh, based upon the experience from the past, that's a no-go anyway. <laughs> I mean, look how bad the translations are because they have the attitude of the translator. So maybe we can tweak the AI into giving a really noble translations of Victor Budadasa, but right now the translations that we have are mostly done by guys who were scholars in the first place, laboriously learned the Thai language, and now are taking the very simple, down-to-earth, dirt language of Victor Budadasa and translated into really, really high-class, hard-to-understand English. In the style of the suttas, because that's exactly what happened with the suttas. That they were absolutely dirt class, ordinary poly in the time of the Buddha. And they've been mistranslated. Don't get me started on my long list of words that are so poorly translated, you wind up not understanding the suttas at all. Words like Nibbana <laughs> and Awaken and um, Enlightenment is another, whatever that is. Um, the jhanas, um, monk, nun, and uh, in fact, someone just mentioned about the uh, uh, <clears throat> the Achan Cha having a schedule. That's what monks and nuns do. They see themselves as monks and nuns, not bhikkhus. For too free. Vicar's not going to bother to go to something because they were invited to go do it. Not unless they're in charge of the place. But that, in fact, is one of the qualities of the Buddha. The only uh, invitation that the Buddha ever accepted was when he was the, the, the one in charge. He was the big dude. No matter what it was. That he got the royal table or wasn't there. <laughs> This is actually in the suttas. <laughs> Wherever he went in public, he was, I mean, all the attention of the room just goes to him. He was the star. But, but those kind of people are not so rare. That was true of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasi. Everywhere he went, he was the star of the show. And so monks showing up because they're supposed to show up, and they're all showing up because they're supposed to show up. Who's the Who's in charge there? Somebody who made the rules, I suppose. 
but a real lion's not going to go says because he was told to go. <laughs> That's, by the way, part of that uh, it takes one to know one kind of thing. The nobles are noble and they know what nobility is because they've been kind of playing with it and working on it for so many years already. And so it takes one to know one. And that answers all of the questions about what happened in the second council at Rajgrave. What happened was is that the uh, uh, Buddhism became known by King Asok, who was already close to it anyway. I mean, his great-great-grandfather or something was King Bambisara, a fellow of the Buddha. But he got it big time. And not only that, but he did it kind of with and by the time he had conquered most of India. And then he put up all of these edicts all over India. And then sutras were gathered later by his son from all over India because Buddhism had kind of spread all over the place. And so this was all gathered together so that they could take it to Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka became kind of the library of, of Buddhism because all of it was snatched by the king during the time of King of Soap. And so uh, they were left with all of these pillars and everything and other copies. Uh, Nalanda, by the way, but much many centuries later was when the entire library that they had at the time was, was destroyed. But um, the point is, is that Buddhism became very popular in the time of Asok. He gave free monasteries, free food, free uh, uh, robes, anything. And so all of the people from all of the other religions, especially Brahmanism, flocked and became monks, student monks. Too many for the original cadre of nobles to handle it's sort of kind of like, imagine that a university that could handle 10,000 students with a faculty of, say, 1,000, all of a sudden grows by 10 times. And now you've got 100,000 students and you still only have a faculty of 1,000 and facilities for 1,000, except that facilities were added by the king, but not the education itself. This is what caused a schism in Buddhism that wound up with the uh, uh, the Theravada and the Mahayana. But that schism didn't really cause the loss of nobility. That nobility continued within each of the groups. And so that's why we can understand that the Dalai Lama the, the guy who is in charge of the monks kind of in one group of the Tibetans is a student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. We've got a little film someplace on our channel that, that, that shows that, that they were there. Okay, so that kind of proves that at that time of the schism that happened in, um, it, it went kind of like this, that the students had to educate themselves because there wasn't any no, no, noble teachers to go around. And so a conference was called. Unfortunately, the conference was called in the capital because the king is going to support the conference instead of having it out in the woods where they should have happened. They kept it on the QT. It was a big whoop to do in town. 
and they only let in the nobles. And the question is, what questions did they ask or how do they know? The answer is it takes one to know one and that's easy enough to figure out. And a lot of them didn't get in. And so they got up tight and they went off and had their own Mahasanga, they called it. They had their own council. And that was the beginning of Mahayana. And this happened in 300 BC. And that split kind of stayed there but at the local level of the monks who lived together, that was only politics. The still the issue was, are you going to learn the noble teachings of the Buddha? And so those things kind of grew apart like that. I think that there's kind of interesting history to understand why Buddhism actually has become a religion is because too many monks were let in to all of a sudden in in that kind of classical sense uh and so the other side is is to see well why did it stay so small why were there so few nobles and so few non-nobles the answer to that came from the point of they got to the point of saying when the student asked the right question at the right time to the right teacher then he's given the right answers. But that only happens occasionally. Someone already has the hunger and thirst after the Dhamma to be able to find the kind of teacher, and so it kind of was rare. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa blew the lid off of that. It needs a lot of thirst. <laughs> a lot of what? Thirst, hunger. For the yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that is what ma makes a soda pond. That's another way of phrasing it. Is when you hunger and thirst after the Dhamma to the point that that's the only thing that you care about. That's when you're in the stream. Why are you in the stream? You're just drinking all the water there is. <laughs> <laughs> Taking it in. So, uh, a lot of people think that becoming Sotapan is a becoming based upon an experience. But you nailed it. It's the hunger and thirst after the Dhamma. Want to see the Dhamma in everything. And then not only are you hunger or thirsty, but you've gotten your fill. And so the eager turns into delight. And I'm tracing down these are, by the way, in Sutta number 48 in the seven knowledges. But that hunger and thirst for the Dhamma is definitely there. I think that's the one that starts at step five. And so this is the process of one becoming noble is that they have to have that hunger and thirst, even if the actual teachings are widespread. But that hunger and thirst is there, even though the people are only getting magical answers to important questions. But if they keep hungering and thirsting and they're the right, around the right guys, then they're going to get in. They're going to get into that old boys club. However, if you're in a society like Thailand is currently now, when you have that hunger and thirst and there happens to be guys out hawking for <laughs> Here's the Dhamma guys. 
the way that it has been with Bikkhu Buddhadasa. That's why he's caught on so much. Now, here's another point about it is, is that Bikkhu Buddhadasa by name is not worshipped. And since he's been dead for 30 years, the younger type people have never heard of him. It's only the older guys that know about him because he died in 1993. Many of you were not even born then. And so this is why, uh, you know, um, we, we, we wind up worshiping the dead when, in fact, he left a living lineage. But we still, in that lineage, want to pay homage to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa because he's the one that opened the doors to this thing. Tamakaya, now, right? Pardon? Tamakaya. Like the body yes. of Dhamma, yeah. Yeah, the whole Dhammakaya, the whole body of knowledge. That in fact the universe, or um, uh, let us say God's creation in the Pali would be Dhammakaya. <clears throat> it's the whole show and is open in fact there's a joke about it and that is the young magical faking dude flew all the way from the US to the Hamanias and then climbed up because he had heard that there's this old monk way up high in the hills that knows all about it and so he hungered and he thirsted and he crawled and he begged and he got his way up there and he says, oh, mighty guru, please tell me one thing I have to know. And that is, what is the key to the universe? What is the Dhammakai? What's the key to the universe? And the old monk answered and he says, I don't know. And then he said, the universe has been left unlocked. <laughs> the key to the universe is that it's been left unlocked. It is available to everybody. All you have to do is walk right in. Take the effort. Get up off your <laughs> broken ass. Your bad <laughs> attitude. <laughs> and walk right in. To the reality of the moment. Here it is. It's been unlocked and we didn't know. <laughs> I have a question on this actually. Um, after staying at Amravati and after staying um, on a retreat uh, recently, um, I've kind of gotten fed up. I mean, in some sense, I'm glad that I, I read about Sotapan and Anagamis and Arahats and all that sort of stuff because it, you know, it, it got my mind interested, you know, it got that kind of craving going and got my, my butt on the cushion. But after my butt's been on the cushion for a while and my mind's been a bit, you know, <clears throat> more tamed over the past year, I've just noticed that this is just getting in the way of me being in the moment. And so now, um, I, you know, I was trying to practice on these retreats and these thoughts would keep coming up of getting somewhere, trying to go somewhere. Right. All going sort of someplace, stuff. setting a goal, getting something, getting a list of things to, to and and lay them down as planks in the mind that you've got to crawl over. It's just like he, hills to climb by name. It's just like, 
in in some sense it's like you know obviously if you want to take a nice walk in the park you gotta like go to the park but once you're there you can't you can't think about the park like you're, you're there like just just enjoy the you know guess what it is hard to not think about the park when you're in the park but humans are good at doing that dogs are not very good at it when they're in the park they know they're in the park mm-hmm. humans can go to the park and they don't have a clue so <laughs> it's 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 okay. like kind of this thing that people say of um you know if you're in the forest and you're walking um obviously the 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 uh, aim is to kind of get out the forest but the objective is to watch each step right we wouldn't be Just here enjoy the moment to... while you're in the forest Exactly, and we wouldn't be here if we didn't care about getting our minds out of the muck, in some sense. Uh-huh. But the next like, part of that, though, is to take the easy way out, and this is the part that most people don't understand: is just take every step, but take the easy way out. Which, in the when you're lost in the forest, means go downhill. If you keep yeah. going downhill, you run across the creek, and then you just follow it downhill, and pretty soon you're going to meet somebody, have a civilization <laughs> somewhere. So take the easy way out. And this is this is my kind of question now, which is, I mean, it's not even a question. It's just like, um, first is why why does practice kind of always seem to go like you know, a few months ago I could sit for like more than an hour, and now like my mind's just like I can't even focus for a few seconds. Um, like, why does it seem That's to vary? That's because so when you were sitting there for an hour, you weren't figuring out that you couldn't focus for a few seconds. You were ignoring what was going on. Now you're beginning to see what's going on. Congratulations. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the other one is... Look at what the mind is doing. It's quite a jungle in there, you know. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's a... Uh... It's, it's, yeah, it is a jungle. I thought I got through the first jungle, and then there's another jungle now. Well, actually, another word for jungle would be tangled. Tangled, yeah. A thicket of views is what the Buddha refers to it. A thicket. So we could use that word thicket as a jungle because we keep getting scratched on our own thoughts. What what did Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa say about, like... Well, many things. In the One moment. of the things he said was, because uh, I asked him, uh, in English, there's a, a phrase, <clears throat> at first you don't succeed, try, try again, which is what you're doing. And he and I said that to him, and he really laughed, and he says, no, if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. And now you're beginning to look at what you're doing. And so that's what the whole Eightfold Noble Path is about, is remember to look at what you're doing. And then take the effort to straighten it out. Which is usually just drop it, because this is a useless thought, and I don't know how it crept in, and try and watch for the right, next one. Just throw, just throw it out. That's, the, that's an easy way to deal with it, is just throw it out. But you have to see that that's the thought. That's why I said, look at what you're doing. And when you see that that's the kind of thought you had, yeah, just throw it out. Be you know, here like, now. I like how Tanestro said uh, the breath is there first. You know, the breath was there before all this nonsense came up in the mind. It's still there. <laughs> it is so important to add the breathing to this. 
because the breathing has many benefits, including to help us remember to be here now with each breath. That's why the Buddha talks about sati, to watch, to make sure that this breath isn't long in breath, and to watch and make sure that this breath is a long out breath. And that generally we make the long out breath and then the holding of the long out breath longer than the in breath. So there's many different ways that we can get started on that. I, we can talk about breathing techniques right now, but I'd rather just play around with other stuff. Uh, other than to say that play with your breath, experience it, recognize how your body chemistry changes by changing your breathing patterns. Look at where the tensions are and relax. These are the first four steps of Anapanasati. Is to remember. Is the, uh, so, this is the other question I have. Um, that um, I am assuming you don't want to have an overly long breath for too long because then, like, um, like kind of forcing well, it. Makes it's the, not, the, if the it's overly time. anything, it's too much. Yes, we're yeah. looking for balance. Sure. Find out what your balance is. Play with that. Get yeah. really comfortable so that you can relax. So there's no rules in there other than dukkha, dukkha, naroda. Come to the relaxation. Remember my story about getting lost in the, uh, the forest in the woods? Please take the easy way out. Or just keep going downhill. Watch where you're going. Go downhill and you'll find your way out. But we've been taught in our society to climb. Climb every mountain, board every sea, follow your heart. Soon you'll find a rainbow with a pot of gold at the end of it. I mean, this is the whole story. Climb every mountain, sure, right. <laughs> I love how all these stories and analogies come together. So, um, the it's like going downhill is so easy because gravity is helping you anyway. Gravity is helping every every step, and uh, naturally that's where water would be. So that's where uh, life would flourish. Um, but also, just reminds me of so many other similes, like the um, the stream and uh, grasping at straws, and why grasp at these views when you can just like relax and. Enjoy Just it. Go with the flow and drink your fill. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one about drinking the stream you're into. It's quite funny. You can thank Veda for that one. That's his idea. Yeah. Thirsty. That's what we are. We're thirsty. Yeah. And all we have to do is just drink and jump in the train <laughs> of life and drink our fill. Nothing new. Nothing new. Nothing new. Yeah, this is old drama. Buddha's been around for 2,500 <laughs> years, and he even said that he just rediscovered an old path. There's nothing much to it except that you meet a lot of good friends along the way to nowhere. Or you must be like, uh, you must become children to enter the kingdom of heaven, kind of thing. Precisely, exactly so. And I tell you the age, precisely so. And that's the age of three. We have to go back and become three-year-olds again where everything is interesting, everything is exciting, and we're, we are able to do anything and go anywhere and get our way every time. 
That's the age of three. It's the marvelous age. And we also are getting all the nourishment from mommy that she can handle. By the time she, you're four, that when she's had another baby, and now you're, your mommy's little helper and your whole world falls apart again. So, yeah. It's you funny. must become a three-year-old child again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is just right here. <laughs> here it is. I was just observing so like a old... family. Sorry, Go ahead. I was observing a family like walking by, and you can see that like a kid behind them is interested in everything surrounding, <laughs> like the scooters in the city, the the, the tiles. And the mom is just like, come on, we got to go be somewhere. We got to go. We got to go. And the kid is just like enjoying himself. You have like plenty of examples of that, like pure. Absolutely. There it is. That's the Dhamma. He's enjoying the Dhamma and she is going someplace, doing something, climbing the mountain called Soda Palm or something like that. To where the real quality of soda pine is, is being thirsty enough to jump in. Well, guys, this has been a really good conversation. I've enjoyed this one. Real tearjerker for a while. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Does anybody have anything to say on the way out? Stay present. Watch your step. Have the best way all you can. Yeah, go. Yeah, take off downhill. Take the easy way out. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll see you guys next time. Wow, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this. Great, great. Thank you, guys. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.